episode number 17 of the Ganas podcast. My name is Alexander, your host, and today I am joined by a good friend of mine and, and someone that I got to grow up with, and I'm very thankful for that, Kiki Crawford. Welcome. Hi, Alexander. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course, and I got to ask too, um, Kiki, or do you go by Charles uh, in California? So I go by Kiki. I'll always be Kiki when I eventually get this PhD. I want to be Dr. Kiki. I don't like my last name. <laughs> my last name is kind of boring, so I stick with it. I love that. That's so cool. And then, so you were in Austin for quite some time, and then you moved out to California. What have been those, did you experience any culture shock moving out to California? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. So I grew up in Texas, uh, west of Fort Worth. I spent seven years in Austin. Uh, then I came out here, <laughs> and it's almost like a... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? It's so like stereotypical to talk about the gas prices, but I do remember like I crossed the line as I was driving to California and immediately you cross the border and the price goes up uh, like astronomically. I was like, oh my goodness, I guess I'm in California now. Um, and so like, I, I think I filled up at four, 450 a gallon, something like that uh, the other day. Um, <laughs> so that's just a day in the life. Um and so that that's uh, the first thing I kind of realized. I was like, okay, I guess we're in California. Yeah. Uh, but once I got settled in, uh, a couple of things did really stand out to me uh, over time. And a couple of things didn't stand out to me as much as I thought they would. Uh, one is that being up here near Sacramento, I really, really appreciate and enjoy the landscape. Uh, hmm. I'm surrounded by trees everywhere. The big, uh, really cool pines of all different kinds. The redwoods are nearby. The sequoias aren't that far. Um, cool. And so there's kind of being able to, to go outside and smell and see those trees. It's probably been my favorite part about this entire area. I, I really enjoy that component um, of my, that, my part of the state, I should say. I love that because for me, trees are extremely grounding, and especially in the work and, and the field of work that you're in, you need that component that can really kind of ground you um, yeah. and stress throughout the day. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, would, you say that, would you say that your, your you know, position, whether you're mentoring students or in research at the moment, is pretty high stress? I'd say parts of it are and parts of it are not. Uh, you already kind of bring up that I've got I wear many hats uh, as a PhD student. And so one of the hats I wear is a researcher. And I do think that that's a very high stress environment, um, partially because of what I do is just by nature, very high stress cell culture. Uh, it, it's a very detail oriented job. Uh, if you mess, if you make a mistake, usually, you know, one mistake, if you think about all the reagents um, and money involved with those reagents and the time involved with that, it's usually going to be dozens and dozens of hours and thousands of dollars put into this thing that now with your mistake is just out the window and so I, that really is a, a pretty high stressful uh, yeah, I do have a question have you or maybe a lab mate ever messed up and then you're out a couple thousand dollars have you ever seen that yeah yeah no um and so it kind of Part of, as a PI, what my boss knows he's doing whenever he takes on a PhD student is he's fully aware that this person has got to learn and the process sure. of learning requires a few mistakes. And so there's kind of this uh, kind of flub budget, if you will, kind of in the mind <laughs> of, I know that there's going to be some expensive errors, but kind of once you get past that sort of training period and you're really kind of working on your own data and your own experiments, then it hits a little harder at home, yeah. uh, harder to home because it's, you know, you have that investment, you really wanted to get those data. Uh, and so that can really get you. But uh, when you kind of think about just by the nature of what I'm doing, I, I grow and I culture tissue in the, you know, a bottle of media sitting at about you know, 100 mils, that cost me $450. The substance that I grow this stuff in, um, that comes out to be 10 mils, that's $500 a pop. Um, and so, you know, if I go through, I use maybe 10 mils of media and one mil of that, that Matrigel stuff, you know, I'm coming out to, you know, a couple hundred dollars over time. And if I mess that up, that's just the media. That's not even the the other more specific reagents or the time put into building these things. Yeah. And so if you have time. a big experiment and you mess it up at the end, it can absolutely be multi-thousand dollars. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause people forget about time a lot too. They just see something in front of them, but it's a lot of the preparation work. Um, that's really interesting to me. And so if you could kind of just give people the background of, of where you're at now, but also where you've been at. So you mentioned you were in Austin uh, for seven okay. years. And then I don't think we have to mention uh, Brewer. I don't think that's very relevant at all. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. So once I got through high school, um, <laughs> when I, uh, I got to the University of Texas and I actually started school as a music major. I, I think a lot of people may not know that. I did not. Um, yeah, so I started school as a music major and I very quickly changed right early uh, my freshman year, technically before the year actually started. I changed into evolutionary biology. And when I changed majors, I really knew, I knew two things. I knew that I wanted to study biology. I really loved the subject. But the second thing I knew is that I didn't want to work in healthcare. I didn't want to work with patients. That really wasn't my vibe. And so that left me <laughs> with uh, not much in the grand scheme of knowing what I want to do with my life. And so then uh, as I kind of went through college, uh, I joined uh, and played for the University of Texas Quidditch team. Um, and so that was a, a great fortune uh, to me. I was able to meet you know, many lifetime friends uh, and learn a lot. And while I was on the varsity team, we ended up winning three World Cups. And the reason that we did so well and that we were so successful is that this team, we had an extremely restricted and intense diet and training regimen. Oh, and so we were like serious, serious. Yes. And so the cool thing about Texas Quidditch, because the University of Texas is so big that, you know, a lot of people, they just want to play Quidditch because they, they like the books, they like the movies, they want to go try out the sport. Uh, and so there's a big organization for that kind of run like intramurals, but then there's a varsity and a JV team. And because the organization is so big, they can have sort of this, like, this is for fun group, but this group <laughs> takes it very seriously. And so up on the, the varsity, yeah, it, it works out well. There's a little bit of something for everyone. And so up on the varsity team, it's kind of funny because you actually get a lot of people that never even read Harry Potter or watched it. You just, the thing about the sport Quidditch is it's tough to get someone to try it out. But mm. when someone tries it out, they find that, you know, it's a very violent sport. Basically you take rugby, basketball, mash them together with a stick between your legs and you get quidditch. And so, uh, so you know, once you get people to start, they can really get bought in. And up in that upper echelon on our varsity team, we had this really strict regiment where, you know, we had a set, you know, plan. We had uh, two uh, practices, three training sessions, a week um, and two rest days. And you had to be there for you know a certain amount of those. If you didn't take it seriously, you just weren't going to stay on the team. Yeah, you can go just, to the other side of the field and play where everyone wants to have fun. <laughs> yeah. And so that was um that, that was a really cool part about being on that team. And what I realized over time is that well, I'm in biology, I'm taking all these physiology classes. And I'm seeing what we're doing here and the success that we're having relative to other groups that aren't taking all this time and effort. And what I really realize is how easily you can mash those in the sense that if you understand how the human body works and you want to make another body, whether it be yours or someone else's bigger, faster, stronger, then there, there's an entire field of using that knowledge and applying it for that purpose. And that whole experience introduced me to exercise physiology. I, I got to take a pause here because I think that's so interesting that you had that foresight, like you made that connection. I think a lot of people, and I can speak for myself too, in situations where I'll be doing something and I'll look back and be like, oh, that would have worked out if I would have connected these two components. But yeah. the fact that you were in the moment and did that, like, that's pretty amazing to me. Before you move on to the exercise physiology, I did have a, a, a question about your team, a little mm -hmm. twofold, but you still have teammates you keep in contact with from the Quidditch team. And what do you think your biggest takeaway was from playing on a Quidditch team and really, you know, being a teammate? Yeah, no, that's, I really like that question. Uh, first of all, yes, uh, I definitely have uh, many uh, good friends. I still keep in contact with mo most all of my closest friends from college uh, I met through the organization. Um, and so I, you know, still uh, keep up with them. I think at my wedding, you know, most, not most, but many of the people there were uh, Quidditch-related <laughs> in one way or another. Um, so yes, I certainly do. Uh, and then for the second part of your question, 
I think for me personally, probably the biggest part that I got out of my experience is that it really pushed me into the trajectory uh, as far as career and academic trajectory that I'm on now. I don't think that if I would have done a different endeavor that wasn't kind of built within athletics, sure. that I would be doing what I'm doing now. Um, and so I think that there's that uh, in conjunction with the fact that uh, my team, my teammates, my captains, we were all so bought in that we took the training so seriously that it reached a point to where I kind of made that connection. I think if it was a little bit more uh, for fun uh, or where in our organization, you know, we're going to play if we win, we win, if we lose, we lose. Uh, which, you know, it's not a bad thing. I just think that if yeah. I was in an organization like that, that I wouldn't have put in so much effort to eventually make that connection. So I do think that I can point to Quidditch as a major turning point. You know, you kind of look back at those uh, kind of what if questions, you know, now. Pivotal moments. Yeah, those pivotal moments. I think that going out for that tryout, I had a good friend said, hey, go ahead and give it a shot. Uh, let's play some Quidditch. So we went to play pickup. And then she was like, hey, the tryouts are tomorrow. So I'm like, okay, okay, sure. I guess I'll give it a try. Uh, and so just that willingness to give it a shot. Fast forward, you know, years and years later, here I am. And I got to say, too, I remember, because again, we grew up in high school together and, I, you know, only one year apart. But when I saw photos of you at UT and I was somewhere playing Juco baseball or something, but I was like, damn, Kiki, like what happened to you? Because <laughs> you look like Terminator. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people that I went to high school, when I was a kid, I was an obese child. Uh, growing up, my grandmother put Mountain Dew in my bottle because she was like, well, I like Mountain Dew. He probably likes Mountain Dew. <laughs> and so I, you know, I got real big, real fast. I played on the offensive line. People look at me now and they're like, there's no way you played offensive line. I remember like, those days. Yeah, it was a pretty good right guard back in the day. But also, you know, I was, I stopped growing in seventh grade. So I was 5'10", 220 pounds as a seventh grader. Now I'm 5'10", 160 pounds. You know, it's kind of funny <laughs> to think how much smaller I am than when I was when I was like 12, sure. 13 years old. Um, but yeah, and so with that whole experience with Quidditch, um, it kind of, I, I went through a couple of phases. One was just, you know, lose a lot of mass. If we can get a little faster, it'll help us a lot. Uh, but then I got a lot bigger after that. So I had this huge kind of change uh, in my body that was really driven from uh, just my desire to, to train and be as big, fast, and strong as I could be. And my role on the Quidditch team was also, <laughs> my niche was the enforcer niche, kind of that Cam <laughs> Chancellor, Jonathan Abram job. Yeah. I, I did a really good job at it, <laughs> um, but I, I did have to kind of tailor my training so that I could kind of become that missile I was looking to be. Sure. So uh, you mentioned right before we kind of segued, but then you got into exercise physiology and where did that take yeah. you at the University of Texas? Yeah, that's a great question. So as I, like I said, as I went through Quidditch, that opened me to the fact that the field exists of exercise physiology, using the idea of physiology to then adapt and, and train bodies. That's really what I wanted to do initially. So I, I sought out a master's degree at the University of Texas, and I joined the human performance lab under Dr. Ed Coyle. And at the time, my career path was I really wanted to make the next generation of Khalil Max and Des Bryant's. I wanted to work directly with athletes, build their training programs and their diets so that they can maximize their potential. That was my goal when I started that degree. And then over the course of that degree, uh, which took me about two years, um, I realized I don't really, you know, working with athletes isn't really my jam uh, so much. I, I had a little bit of exposure to it. We had a number of uh, really premier uh, endurance athletes, especially. Uh, come in for testing. And it was cool to get that experience. But throughout the process of getting my degree, I had to work with human subjects, both athletes and non-athletes. And I found that I didn't really enjoy that process very much. And what I really liked was the science. I love the physiology and I love this, the biology of this field, or rather this entire field of biology, I should say. So much more so than working with the people in that process, because I wrote down what changed the goal for you. You said I, when I initially started, this was the goal. But in that process, you found that it was more just so the science behind it, as opposed to the process of finding out the science. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, what I really found that I liked the most uh, about exercise physiology and physiology in general was I, I liked thinking about the subject and applying it 
all the time in the sense that the way I see physiology is it's the study of, of the body, you know, how you're living, breathing, sitting here. And so as long as you're a living, breathing human, it always applies. And so what I found was I would, you know, study these classes and I'd learn about how, you know, the kidneys work. I'd learn all about the renal system. And then, you know, three or four times a day, I'd go to the bathroom. I'd sit there, go in the bathroom. I'd start to wonder, you know, I know why this happens. You know, I, I get why I, I got to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I, I'd go up a flight of stairs. I start breathing a little heavier. And I love that I knew why, you know, I, I mm-hmm. could tell you, I could, I'd go through the, the, the neuroscience of it, the respiratory physiology. And it was like a big, a big puzzle that is the human body that you can always see what's going on and appreciate the parts we do and don't understand. And that's what really got me going. I think that's what made me really excited about the topic. Uh, And then when I threw the course, what I thought was, you know, I wanted to use that to make athletes bigger, better, faster, stronger, is that kind of a couple things. One is that other people, you know, if they don't share that same love and passion that you have, then it's kind of like running uphill, you know? Uh, and so I would try to work with, uh, it would even start with, with a couple of um, former teammates or kind of new members of the Quidditch team. I was off the team, but people were like, hey, you know, Kiki, you'd exercise physiology. Could you help us out? Sure. Uh, and I would, I, I would try uh, to help, but you'd kind of realize that unless someone was really that sometimes things go kind of one in in one ear out the other, or maybe like, okay, you know, I, this person may be an expert uh, or have expertise, I should say. Uh, <laughs> and I could listen uh, and this could help me out, but that sounds hard, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to do it. And I kind of realized, you know, that's a, that's a common theme, you know, working with people is that it's tough to get people to listen to you. Uh, and it's tough to listen to someone else if you don't share that same excitement. And I think that that was uh, maybe kind of one of those things that kind of helped me realize that I really need to pivot. I, I want to focus on the science itself and not so much trying to use the science directly on people. Again, uh, what really strikes me about you is the self-awareness uh, and the confidence to kind of pivot. Uh, two things I have for you. I just noticed that incredible Daft Punk poster behind you. Oh, and, yeah. And I am quite a fan. I'm a lurker on Reddit, okay? And one of the Reddit subreddits that I'm in is the Daft Punk one. And so I have that bookmarked because I'm going to purchase the same poster. Oh, awesome. I got it from, uh, from Penzel, from my best friend. Oh, Penzel, uh, yeah. For my birthday, uh, I think two years ago, he sent this that to me. It's one of the coolest things I own. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so my other question was, you worked in a lab, Dr. Coyle's lab, and, you know, great lab, I'm sure. I wanted to ask, what was maybe your favorite part about it? And then what was maybe an aspect that you, looking back now, meant like, you were like, oh, maybe I could have used more support or I wish yeah. maybe that would have been slightly different. Cause I know, you know, working in a lab and all that, you know, you had certain points you love, but also like, man, sometimes I felt like I was in an ocean just drowning. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred uh, percent. So something I really appreciate about that lab uh, more than anything is the, the people that worked in it. Um, they were immensely helpful and not only my learning, uh, not just the science, but how to navigate graduate school in general. Um, but also just, uh, they were good friends. Uh, I think outside, you know, after my time in Quidditch, it's tough to make friends as an adult. Um, and so I was really fortunate in that um, my fellow uh, graduate students in that lab were really supportive, uh, both of me uh, and of uh, just kind of all of us kind of in, we, we sort of had this kind of, we're all in this together mentality and yeah. someone had an experiment going on, everyone else was there to help, uh, you know, uh, if, if you're able to. And so I think that that environment with the students was my favorite part of the lab. I think that what I didn't love so much was really the environment kind of from the top down. In the sense that when I started graduate school, when I started my master's, I didn't have much guidance uh, in that I didn't really know anyone else who had gone on to graduate school that I was very close with. Both of my parents went to law school and my stepmom went to medical school. So they could attest to, or, you know, give me some insight into postgraduate education. But a master's degree was something that was a bit, you know, I I just didn't have much guidance. And so I kind of flubbed around. Uh, I looked at labs. I didn't really know what was expected of me. And I saw human performance, didn't know much about it. The lab itself, I just knew that I was like, I want to work with athletes. This sounds up my alley. So I just, you know, 
email Dr. Coyle just willy nilly. I was like, hey, you know, I'd like to. I had no idea who this guy was. He's <laughs> a pretty big deal, man. <laughs> I know, right? Well, you just you have no idea, and you're just like, yeah, we'll just go check out what this guy does. So I went up. I, I, I met with him, and we had a good meeting because uh, I because of my interest. He thought that that was that was very interesting, despite my limited research background. Um, so then once I joined the lab, I was now in this environment in Dr. Coyle's lab. And Ed Coyle, just like you alluded to, you know, he's a big name guy. He's been around a long time. He's brought in a lot of money over the years. And so he's become a very well-established PI. And I think a lot of the time uh, when you have a very well-established PI, part of it's that they have a lot of expectations on them. Uh, and part of it's that they've kind of been around the block a few times. But many times those labs, you as a student need to be a bit more independent. You're usually not going to learn directly from the PI. Um, PI is principal investigator for anyone not really in research. They're generally like the head or the boss of the lab. And what I found uh, was that in that environment, because I didn't have much guidance, I didn't have much background, I needed a little bit, I needed my hand to be held just a little bit. I needed someone to kind of show me, show me the ropes, show me what getting a master's, getting a graduate degree is really all about. Um, and so I really looked to the fellow students in that lab for that um, knowledge, since I really didn't get that so much from the top down. Dr. Coyle is a very important person in the field, so he's often gone. And so, you know, sometimes you go two weeks, three weeks even without ever seeing your PI, and that puts a level of independence on you to, to keep things moving forward and to be doing what you need to do. That's a long time to not see a mentor. Like that's, and like, if you think about it, you know, semester is only 16 weeks. Yeah, right. So, and you only get 32 of those in grad school, right? So that's, that's, that's quite a bit of chunk of change. And Absolutely. I, I, I can relate to that a little bit because, you know, my mentor, Dr. Hunter, was mentored uh, by Dr. Tanaka. And yeah, so that's right. I remember there's similarities in, in, you know, how you start to mentor your students. And so I was Dr. Hunter's first official student that actually completed a thesis. And it's interesting because at Texas State, the, I wouldn't really characterize the, the culture to really push people to do theses. It's kind of just like, oh, you want to do this? So because of that, there weren't really systems in place or much mm -hmm. guidance. You know, it's kind of like I was yeah. doing something very novel while others were just teaching classes for two years. Um, so very interesting experience for me as well. So I kind of want to pivot and I want to talk about you finish working in the ex-phys lab, you figure out you don't want to work with athletes per se, but you love the science behind things and the processes. Yeah. Then you started to get into animal research in Dr. Stone's lab, right? Yeah. Please, please. Yeah, I want to hear this. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, just like you said, you know, I realized I love the science. I don't really like working with people. So I needed time to, to figure out what do I want to do with that? Um, and I knew that one way or another, I needed to dive a little deeper uh, into the field. And so I spent a gap year uh, before I really kind of started applying to graduate school for my PhD. Uh, and in doing in that gap year, um, I knew that I wanted to teach and I wanted to do some research, get my feet a little wetter on the research side of things with a new model and to reinforce my teaching. I TA'd all through my master's. And for me, that had always been my favorite part of the entire degree. It's, it's uh, so teaching fun. Science. It's so it is. Fun. It, it is. It, it's a fun job. I really like it. Um, and so uh, during that gap year, uh, I, I taught at, at Texas. I, I essentially took like a double TA load. I had a job called like a specialist. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a good experience. But then I reached out to Dr. Stone right before I finished my master's. And I specifically spoke with Dr. Stone for really kind of two reasons. One is that she did more mechanistic research that I was interested in going into. And so in the human performance lab, and laboratories that work with humans in general, you can't dive very deep. Whatever questions you want to ask, you know, ethically, you can only do so much to really find out, you know, why is this happening? A lot of times you're just trying to see, does something happen at all in humans? And then that question tends to go down other routes. Yeah, you can't, you can't get too invasive with measures. So mechanistic yeah. I mean you could be a little more invasive and then it's also not in humans so you can really kind of get down to the nitty-gritty of what you're collecting 
Exactly. I, if we see an effect, I'm curious, you know, why is there upregulation of a certain protein or is there a gene that's turned off or maybe is it uh, a neural versus a local component? These are things that are much harder to do in humans. And I knew that Dr. Stone did re her research on rats. She worked on the autonomic nervous system. So the part of the nervous system that keeps you alive that you don't have any control of, uh, to any listeners that, that don't know that field, it's really cool and exciting. Uh, and so what she does uh, is she uses rats for that research and she focuses on the effects that diabetes has on our reflexes. And so when you go up a set of stairs or you go and start you know, shoveling snow, there is a response where the muscle detects stress and then that signals up to the brain and then the brain reflex reflexively increases blood pressure because sure. we're about to have more blood go to the muscles. So let's increase pressure so we can get that blood there and keep it going to the brain. It's called the exercise presser reflex. And when someone has diabetes, that reflex is really exacerbated. And so when someone goes up a flight of stairs, now their blood pressure response is as if they're trying to sprint a 100. And so wow. that, that can be really dangerous because you have people with diabetes who usually have harder vessels because of atherosclerosis. And now you're increasing the pressure really fast, really high. That's a big part of why when people have diabetes, they're more likely to get a, a stroke or yeah. experience a heart attack, um, especially during usually more medial exercise activities. And so she uh, was interested in that. Do you mind if I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you, um, yeah. why is that reflex exacerbated? That was what she wanted to know. Because oh, in okay, humans, cool. yeah, cool. no, in the humans, very similar, you know, what we were just saying, they knew that that happens, but they don't know why and they didn't know how. And if you want to try to do something about it, whether it's, you know, add in a drug or change a behavior to fix the problem, you need to know why the problems happen. Yeah. And so that's what she did. That was her area, is her area of research. And I thought that that sounded really cool. I had some experience with diabetes and metabolism in general through my time with Dr. Coyle. And so I thought that that was a really good fit. So it gave me an opportunity to dive deeper, get smaller and do things that I thought were a little bit more challenging, but a little bit more fun. I had to do a lot of surgeries on rats, which was an interesting thing to learn the process of. And I really enjoyed it. And I would do things where I would put, you know, um, uh, cannulations into blood vessels, tiny little <laughs> blood vessels where I'm like yeah. looking through a microscope while I'm working down here. Wow. And so all of that just interested me because I thought it just sounded cool. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Skill too, just the skills that you can learn. And I believe Absolutely. it, when did you learn the Western blocks? Is that, am I a little too forward? No, that was also during that time. So those oh. are my kind of two jobs with Dr. Stone. Did you take Western blocks from mice as well or rats? So we would take uh, sections of dorsal root ganglia, so parts of the spine related to sensory afferents, so the part that sends the signal when you feel, see, I guess not see, but feel um, things. That signal goes wherever it's happening, goes through the DRG up to the brain. So part of what we were curious about was, well, you know, this part of the spine is it oversensitized? Is there something right. saying like, oh, you know, the muscle's going way harder than it should be. Yeah. Maybe it's not the muscle's fault, but it's the spinal cord's fault. Maybe it's and always so I took tissue turned on, that. right? Maybe it's always turned on or something. So it's like, you're just trying to see, track it where it's coming from. Yeah. yeah. And so we were um, taking those uh, tissue sections and I would do Western blots on those. And so we would try fun. to find channels and proteins that are maybe just upregulated. Um, but yeah, so that was a big part of why I wanted to work with Dr. Stone. But there was one other really big part, and that was that I really liked her. She was a, a young investigator, so she had that kind of that fire, that sure. kind of drive that you have when you're young and in the field. Uh, and I think that that, in conjunction with just her personality and who she is, allowed her to be the type of mentor that I was looking for. Because um, I don't mean to make it seem like Dr. Coyle was a bad mentor. He just wasn't the mentor for me. I think sure. that I have friends that specifically seek out labs where they can just work on their own, have a lot of independence, <laughs> and they don't have to have their PI breathing down their back. I was the opposite. I wanted a PI that would be in the lab that I could learn firsthand from 
that I could kind of develop a, a different kind of relationship with. And Dr. Stone was very much that. Do you think that, so do you think if maybe Coyle's uh, or Dr. Coyle's, I should say, his mentoring was a bit different, maybe he was a little more in the lab with you. Do you think when you were looking for a different lab, you would have looked maybe for a more autonomous lab or still the same experience? I think I probably still would have gone for the type of mentor that is a little bit more hands-on. I love that. I, I really, I love that. that about you. I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, and also Dr. Stone, she kind of brings a bit more of a new age mentality in that she would spend more time asking us about us and how we are than our data. Um, you know, I, uh, there's a little, uh, just like a little sticky note on like the computer monitor that just says like, you know, have a great day today. Uh-huh. Cute little things like that. Um, they kind of re- like Dr. Stone will remind me that I'm a person and yes. I'm not, you know, uh, a data collector. And I think sometimes when you have like the big name PI, uh, the data is really important. You know, you're like, I got to get this, this data out because it's, yeah. it's, you know, Dr. Coyle's name is stamped over it. And I, I, I think people that- underestimate how pertinent getting data and because you know, that's all tied into grants and putting papers yes. out. So peop- if you're listening to this, there's a reason why that's got to be the way it is. And sure, I'm sure there's a little more room for error, but at the end of the day, data is like the most prioritization, right? Absolutely. Because because you allude to, you know, the PIs, they're, they're scientists, but they don't do a lot of the science. A lot of what they're doing is taking the science that's being done by graduate students, project scientists, or postdocs, and they're taking those and making a story out of it. Yes. And then they're pitching that story to either big companies or the government so that one of these two entities will fund, further fund that individual's research. Absolutely. And so I understand. You know, that, that's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's just kind of part of how the system works. And then being on the bottom while they're writing, writing on the top. Uh, I think it's really important to have a, a relationship that's built um, both top down and bottom up so that, that it works as smoothly as that it, as it can. Yeah. Uh, so after Dr. Stone's lab, did you work there for a year or two years? Uh, just a little over a year. All right. I and, think and like a year and three months. Once you finished that, I remember when we were talking before you had made your decision, you and I were speaking about kind of your options and mm-hmm. you were talking about, do I want to stay at UT or do I want to go elsewhere? And I think mm. the biggest pull to go elsewhere was, well, now I'm getting to diversify my research experience. I'm not doing it all at one school, which isn't a yes. bad thing to say. But if you can go out and experience different mentors, different faculty, that's just exposure and diversification diversification of the experience. Absolutely. Not only in the research itself, but I think some of it just in life. Uh, you know, I had grown up in Texas, uh, North Texas, Central Texas is where I had always lived other than like you know, one summer I lived in Spain, um, which was cool, but it doesn't provide the same type of experience as really going out on a limb and mm-hmm. kind of moving away. And so some of it, I think, was I, I just kind of wanted to spend a little bit more time in a new part of the world. But most of it, I'd say, was really related to a diversification of my uh, academic um, exposures, uh, I think, more than anything. And so like you alluded to, I had a few options when I was trying to pick So I I finished my work in Dr. Stone's lab and that told me, that really helped me to solidify like, okay, I I like the field uh, and I'm interested in staying in science. And what I liked about Dr. Stone's lab is I could do the research component, but I didn't have to do a lot of writing. Mm. Um, I I liked being a research assistant because it's like, oh, you know, you need data. I'll work on this. I'll get you those data. And then y'all can write about it. I really <laughs> like that because I think that's the fun part. But then once you've got all this data and you've got to put it into a manuscript, I think that's a big part of what I don't really enjoy. So Writing much. is tough, man. Writing can be tough sometimes. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's always someone to be frustrated with, you know, whether it's yourself or you got you got this big empty page you got to put together uh, or, you know, a reviewer sometimes will say something and you're just like, if you only understood. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not that big a deal. We're like, I don't know, little things. Uh, writing, writing takes a, you take a lot of hits, you know, you trying do. to get papers out there. You, do. you take hits getting data, but uh, it's, it's more fun. You know, like if I'm doing a surgery and I learn something the hard way, I still have that like, okay, you know, next time 
we'll try it and we'll, we'll get it right next time. And it's kind of exciting because of it's the skill-based task and, and it's, I don't want to say a game because surgery is no game, but it, you know, it's something you're doing with your hands. And I think I like that. I think with the writing and that kind of, you know, you see it one way and it's just, you're just trying to get this out there. Um, it's not as fulfilling or as gratifying or I didn't right. feel that way. And so, so that was, those were some things that I learned, what I liked, what I didn't like um, throughout that process. It helped me know like, okay, I do want to get a PhD. Uh, and throughout this time, just like we had said, I had also been teaching and that really grew. And, and I really kind of came into my own as an educator during that time uh, to really kind of know like my style, what I like, how, how to approach it. I had a really good time doing that. Uh, but then I knew I wanted to do a PhD. I applied to a handful of different places and I ended up picking Davis. Uh, just kind of like we said, there was a diversification uh, of my educational exposures. I think that that was a really cool thing. I think that there were, when I look back at the University of Texas at what I was able to be exposed to and learn about physiology, there was a lot, but I never really touched the digestive system. Uh, there wasn't a, a whole, whole lot of uh, immunology uh, sensory physiology. There's these little pockets of physiology that I thought were really interesting. Well, what, no what, what, what's, uh, what is sensory physiology? Would that be like the nerves? Yeah, it's a sensory physiology. It's oh, wow. Oh, it's one of the coolest branches in the whole field. You don't hear it about is, that too much. You don't, you don't. Um, it's essentially how you as a person perceive the world. And so everything from how the eyes work, how your nose works, your ears, your skin, how all of these receptors that are detecting things integrate with your nervous system and allows you to perceive it. And I really love the field because it is the reason that we see the world that we do. But additionally, I think that one of the coolest things about sensory physiology is comparative sensory physiology. Because growing up, I always figured, you know, oh, you know, dogs, butterflies, and bats, they all see the world the same way that I do. And throughout this experience of getting to study this field, you know, you learn that uh, like in a mole, uh, or sorry, one of the star-nosed moles, the amount of their brain that's dedicated to touch is so, so much more than ours, and they're practically blind. Oh, wow. And so when you think about how they're actually perceiving the world, you know, they're not looking at a Zoom screen, seeing each other's faces. Their entire mm -hmm. world is different. Um, we see the colors that we see because we have three types of color detecting cells in our eyes. A mantis shrimp has so many more of those types of cells. I think it's, I think it's like seven to 14 of them, somewhere in that range. We have three. What that means, if you think about it. Yeah, please. Is that a, a mantis shrimp can see colors that we don't have the ability to imagine. You can't imagine a color that you've never seen. How, how does that make you feel? Because right now I felt like a ping in my heart. Like I feel jealous almost. It's <laughs> right. It's, it's so, it just makes me curious. And so I have a question. If I were to set this, you said, what was it? A shrimp? A mantis shrimp. A mantis shrimp right here. And I'm looking yeah. at you and I'm looking at this fiddle leaf behind my, my laptop and I see red and I see the white wall and the blinds. You're telling me that it would probably see the same thing, but just completely different and layered with different yeah. colors. Absolutely. Just because it has the physiological ability. I have, a, I have another question because my, my research brain is kicking in now. Are, is there any research just looking at trying to adopt the traits or the cells and implement it into maybe a human? That's an interesting question. And that's a really tough one. I don't think anyone's really doing that. And I think a big part of maybe that specifically is because it's probably a little tough to get some funding. Sure. Because oh, when you yeah. think of the application, it's like, that'd be really cool. <laughs> but, but why? The people with money are kind of like, what would I do with that? Yeah, right? yeah. But, um, but I think that the, there are many different ways uh, to apply these ideas and, and really simple things even. Like when you think about a mouse, a huge portion of a mouse's brain is dedicated to smell. Its olfactory cortex is massive. And so when you look at what people are doing with mice research, you know, sometimes you have to take into an account, yeah, people use mice because it's really well established, but the way they perceive the world is completely different. Mm. And so maybe if your research has to do with stress physiology and you have a pet snake and you keep coming into the lab and you smell like your pet, now your data is coming out of whack, which is an application that I've actually had to deal with. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> that's, 
that's how delicate it can be then, right? Yeah, and it's hard for us to imagine, right? Because we can never smell someone's pet snake on them, you know, 10 hours after they were hanging out with it. (laughs) That's just the world to a mouse. And if you don't have that understanding, then, you know, it's not something you even remotely think about. Yeah, I think that that's cool, but all animals and all, you know, creatures of all kinds, you know, they, every individual's perception of the world. I used to, right, I think what really struck with me is that, you know, the world is not, the world that you see is not the world. The world that you see is the world that you perceive. What what has that done for you uh, outside of research? Just being able to literally have so much, you know, perception of the world. Like, how has that affected you maybe as a partner or as a friend? with just having these realizations within the lab? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really cool question. So I, I think more than anything, when I think about that and the reason that sensory physiology to me is so interesting is that I find it to be very grounding. Uh, mm. I think that there are many things that are incredibly anthropocentric. We, we think that the world really revolves around humans. And I think when I realized that you know, not only does the world not revolve around humans, but so many of these other creatures, they don't even see the world the way that humans do, which means that the way that humans think that the world is, isn't even the world, you know, it's just the way that humans know it. Uh, And I think that that was very grounding for me to kind of just help me kind of realize just my place, you know, in this universe, you know, the the one, you know, dot in this giant sea, the, the quarter of a second in this, you know, years and years that you can extrapolate the history of the world or the universe. I think that it's just cool to me to kind of remember that uh, it's not all through human eyes, so much I, so that, you know, it's not even the world. I love that, too, because a lot of the times to, to be humbled or to have more humility you kind of have to undergo maybe, you know, a bad experience to learn. And then you're like, all right, I, now I know. But yours was kind of such a gentle, easy, I'm going to rock you into this humble uh, perception yeah. now. You know, that's, I, I love that. Yeah, and no, absolutely. And I think that I, I extended it a little bit to my perception uh, also within humans. You know, you start to think like a bee sees ultraviolet. I can't imagine seeing ultraviolet. I can't imagine that world. Now I've got maybe someone, maybe from a faraway place, maybe from next door, but the way that they've gone through their entire perception of the world is also different from mine. You know, everyone's got their own lens. And I think that realizing the differences between animalia helps me kind of apply that and remember that with my interactions between people that, uh, you know, I can't even imagine the world that they're seeing, let alone, you know, all these other creatures. And I think it was just really, I think humbling is a good phrase. Yeah. Humbling, humbling. And then it also sounds like just, man, I, Again, imagine if you would have stayed at UT or like you don't get, you know, exposure to these different types of physiologies and sensory. And then, you know, it sounds like you become a lot more empathetic as well, just because, again, these huge realizations. And that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, what do you think are some of the biggest takeaways from, okay, I'm going to make a scary jump. I'm going to go somewhere else and I'm going to choose to learn new skills in a lab setting. And I'm doing sensory physiology and immunology and digestive system. But what does that do like in your real life too? And it sounds like there it is. It's humility and and increased empathy. Yeah. And I I think that's a good pull from like this specific field. And that's, you know, part of why that certain field, it's not even what I do research on. It's just (laughs) something I just think is so cool. You know, I get really excited. I'm geeking out right now. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. But I I think that that, that's a huge part of it. And then additionally, to kind of extend on what you said, um, I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of taking, going out on a limb. Uh, what I really went into, and which I, we will probably talk about soon, but the field I'm in now is nothing like the field I was in uh, with Dr. Stone, and it's nothing like the field I was in with Dr. Coyle, and all of this is completely removed from my undergraduate degree. Yeah, please, so, please share. Like I, I want people to know what you do now at UC Davis. That's, it's very interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, so what I do now, so after uh, I went you know, through my time with Dr. Stone, I came to the University of California, Davis, which is the number one veterinary school in the entire world. And so part of what really pulled me to them was like, they brought me out here on a recruitment event. Uh, and they showed me the, you know, some of the labs, the facilities and the resources that you can get working in the vet school. And that was very enticing to me. I, it was a, a really, really awesome place with lots of, lots of toys to work with. Um, and so that brought me out here. I think that, that was a big part of it. And once I came out here, the way that Davis works, uh, at least in their physiology program, 
is that you do rotations with laboratories. You do four of them. And at the end of those four rotations, that's when you pick the one that you are going to do your PhD in. So I went through those four rotations. And in doing so, I prioritized the mentor. Uh, I was really open. I was kind of like, you know, whatever research you do, whether it's, you know, uh, you work with the gut, the brain, the heart, uh, the kidneys, I don't like the kidneys that much, but even the kidneys, I'll stay open. Um, I really, I deprioritized the science and I prioritized the mentor. I just wanted to get a feel for this person. And I figured, you know, I can study bone or I can study the intestines for four years. Because a lot of times when people get their PhD, they move on and they move fields a little bit. Usually they change models or they might change systems. And so if you get really excited about just the field, you might be a little disappointed when you continue on in your career. But if you prioritize your mentor and you know that you know whatever you're working on for the next four or five years, they're gonna have your back. I think that that moving on to whatever you do in your career will have a huge positive influence. I- Real quick before we go on, I think that's such a like a silver lining or a positive way to view anything in any life in any type of context, but choose the person, like really figure out who they are before you choose to proceed with something. Something might seem really lucrative over here, but the person Mm -hmm. that's backing it, are they going to have your back? Like, I love when you were looking for that, that you chose to find a trusted mentor. Absolutely. Wow. And so, you know, they'd start even talking about, you know, because when you first have these meetings, they're so used to the graduate student asking about their research. And I would really kind of have to stop and be like, all right, you know, we'll talk about this if I pick your lab, but I want to talk about you. Wow. What I really, what I really was looking for was because I was looking for someone who prioritized their students as mentees and as people. Uh, I was looking for someone who potentially, you know, had a family or prioritized their family in one way or another um, that, um, appreciated the ideas of mental health and also giving us time to live life. I think that all those were kind of, you know, that's what I was looking for, kind of mixed into a package that really mentored similar to Dr. Stone. And basically, long story short, I had such a good experience with Dr. Stone that I was looking for us another Dr. Stone in UC. I was going to ask you, do you think if you don't take that gap year and you immediately go to your PhD program at UC Davis, do you have the foresight to ask those personal type questions to the people that are wanting to bring you into their lab? I absolutely don't. In fact, I (laughs) applied before I started my gap year, I applied uh, to work in a lab at Oregon. I wanted to do my PhD at Oregon under a lab that did environmental physiology. It's a a big name guy, his name's Chris Minson, and he's trying to understand how heat stress affects the cardiovascular system in both positive and negative ways which that is a field I thought was really cool. And I applied and wanted to work with Dr. Minson having never met him. It was a small lab and I just wanted that lab and I ended up being the number two application and they only accepted one, which all in all, you know, I was disappointed at the time, but had it not been for that, I wouldn't have had my experience with Dr. Stone and I wouldn't end up at Davis. And so uh, life goes on, if you will. But I, I certainly... It was my experience with Dr. Stone that kind of helped me realize like, hey, you know, I never really cared too much about the autonomic nervous system. And it's still like, I think it's cool, but I enjoyed that time because of my time with her. Um, And so then when I came to Davis, that was really what I prioritized above all else. And I had the, the good problem of having three really positive experiences and having to pick. Uh, at that point, then based on the science, because I had three ah. researchers, all of whom I really enjoyed working with out of the four I tried. And one of them just wasn't my jam. And it's a good thing that I had that experience. I, I knew I don't want to work with that person. And so then it got to be a matter of, okay, I need to pick who I want to work with. And the person I ended up choosing, his name is Amir Cole, uh, Dr. Cole. He works with stem cell biology. And he was interested in starting a new branch of his lab to make intestinal organoids. And that was kind of his, I don't wanna say his sales pitch, but his kind of like, if you join the lab, this is what you would do. And that sounded so cool to me because it sounded like science fiction. And I was like, well, if I'm out here and I'm going out on a limb, Let's go all out on the limb. I've never done anything like this before, but <laughs> you know, I, I got into the program. So love it. Let's do it. Um, and so that that's what that's what I did. That's who I chose. Uh, and I really, really love, before I even talk about the science of it, just very brief moment to say that Amir is an awesome boss and he's everything I really was looking for. 
in that he has a family. He loves his family. He really prioritizes that. He's from Israel. He goes back to Israel every single year. So he kind of has this understanding of I'm away from my family. I travel back, you know, and when he goes, he goes for a month. Uh, so oh, wow. one month of the year, I know that he's going to be in Israel. And I think that that's really, that was a really positive thing wow. for me to find yeah. someone who for him, that's so important. So now when I say like, you know, I want to go back, I want to go back to Texas and see my grandmother, you know, I'll be back in a week. He's just like, Hey, that's cool. Just make sure all your cells are frozen or that someone's got your back. I'll see you when you're back. And that kind of like, I don't even need to ask. I don't even care. He's on top of it. But I know that, you know, that's something he wants to and needs to do. Yeah. That was really, I think that was an awesome benefit of getting to work with him. In addition to the worldly uh, just um, exposures that I get, I also joined a lab where I'm the only person who was born and raised in the United States. Uh, everyone else wow. from my lab, one person was born and raised in Iran, another in Chile, and another in um, Peru. Um, that's so beautiful. Like, again, yeah. like, that's diverse diversification of the mindset, like of perspectives. And now when you're conducting research, you're thinking of perspectives that you grew up with and that allows you to have more of a comprehensive approach. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like with that lab on top of him, getting all those perspectives. Oh, and I, I said, uh, Chile, she moved to Argentina uh, and then mainly grew up in Argentina. But with all of that, I just got these exposures. I get to have conversations uh, about things I'd never have. Uh, and so I, I just thought that that was a nice little cherry on top uh, to get to just have these uh, experiences with these different people that I enjoy yeah. being around. But then more to the science side of things. So now what I really do uh, is I do stem cell biology. And so I work with stem cells uh, specifically of the intestine. And so I take stem cells out of the intestine and then I culture them and I grow them in a way that allows them to form organoids and organoids are, are small three-dimensional functional units of tissue. And so I work with intestinal organoids. And so they're, they're really, really cool. They're, I start with a stem cell, it forms this kind of ball and then grows all these kind of buds around it. And it, over time, it has all the cell types that the intestines have. They look and they act like the intestines. They can absorb nutrients. They can secrete hormones and mucus and all this cool stuff. And so my first year in the lab was really just a matter of getting off the ground. Uh, I was starting this whole branch of the lab, uh, myself and, and now a master's student in our lab. We kind of spearhead that side of it. Um, and so that was, that was about a year of work, just learning how to do the culture, uh, which I think was kind of tough for me because everyone else in my cohort, they had picked slightly more established labs at the time. And I knew I was going into a young lab. That was part of what I wanted. Sure. But because they came in in slightly more established labs, I feel like they were getting data and making more progress on their dissertations while I was still just trying to, to figure things out from the ground up. What do they say? Uh, comparison is a thief of joy. Like you're kind of looking yeah. at your peers and you're like, ah, I want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Just the fact that like, oh, you're working on your dissertation. Like you're getting stuff for that. I'm nowhere <laughs> near. Like it, to me, it was like this, like the light's not at the end. I don't see the light. You know, this tunnel's so long. But, um, but that's okay. Cause I, you know, just as we've kind of discussed, I, I pick someone whom I enjoy working with. So on those long kind of uh, tough days, I really kind of remember two things uh, that I like working with who I'm working with and that what I'm doing is like just 10 years ago, I guess 15 years ago now it didn't exist. You know, it was science fiction. I think the first person who did it, Hans Clevers, uh, I think it was 2008 uh, that he wow. made the first intestinal organoid. So like we were in high school uh, when this first happened uh, and, and now I'm just doing it just casually you know, as a PhD student. I, I think that that was a really exciting and cool thing that brought me to that field. So I have a question. So you're creating these organoids that act like intestines. What is, what is like the implication of that? Like what is, you know, like average population, why the hell should I care about that? Like what's so cool? Awesome. Awesome thought. Two things. I think two things more than anything. One of them is that this brings out you take that back three things. <laughs> All right. One of them is that if we can build these microscopic balls of intestine, the goal down the line is to build full blown sheets of intestine. Uh, hopefully someday, you know, we'll get to the point where we're able to transition from organoids into organs. 
Yeah. I work with the intestine, but the organoid field extends to brain organoids, liver organoids, cardiac organoids. You know, there are all kinds of different tissues that we're building this for. And all of these different tissues, you know, if we have the potential to build a microscopic one, who knows, in 20 years time, maybe we're just building hearts from scratch. That I think is the number one coolest thing about this branch. And could one hypothetically, when that were to happen down the road, you know, you have the, the, the donor list of organs or something. Are you saying that potentially it could be like a hospital's full of hearts and, and livers and kidneys for when things go wrong, instead of looking at the donor list, you know, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. let's go into this room and we can remove this and put that in someone. In a way, yes. But to extend on that idea even more and to go into my second point that I think is really cool about them is personalized medicine. Mm. When we talk about, you know, if I need a heart transplant, I might find someone who has a heart that they're able to, you know, they, maybe they pass and they're a donor, but if you don't have the right myohistocompatibility complex, the whole, uh, it has to do with the immune system. If not, everything's right. You're going to get an immune response and your body's going to reject that heart. So people that get transplants, they usually have to take a lot of immunosuppressants just to keep their own immune system from breaking down the tissue that they just received. And so another really cool thing about organoids is personalized medicine, because we've gotten very good just as a scientific community at taking someone's cells and reprogramming them into stem cells. Hmm. And for those that, there, there are many people that hear the word stem cells and may not quite fully understand, but a stem cell has really just two things that make it special. One is that it's proliferative. It's constantly dividing. When you hear about like mitosis in high school, you know, those cells that are always dividing, those are stem cells that are able to constantly replicate. That's one of the criteria. The other criterion is that it has the ability to differentiate. And so when we talk about, you know, our cells, your eye cell and your stomach cell have the exact same DNA, but your eyes aren't secreting acid and you can't see your food while it's getting digested, right? So there's a lot of special processes that take all of that DNA and tell a cell, you're going to look and act like this. This is what's gonna make you an eye cell. This is what's gonna make you a stomach cell. And once a cell becomes that, it's, it's differentiated. It's now become different from the other tissues. Sure. And it's stuck like that. You know, that stomach cell is a stomach cell. It's what it does. A stem cell, what makes it really special is that it replicates, but also that it has not yet differentiated. So from that stem cell, you can theoretically make any type of cell. And so that's really cool. And the idea of personalized medicine is that you can take someone's, a really hard thing that took a while for people to figure out, but Shinya Yamanaka, he got the Nobel Prize for discovering how to take a cell and revert it back to make something that's been differentiated and then make it a stem cell. Oh, whoa. Once you've done that, you've opened the floodgates at what could potentially happen, right? Because you can take a skin cell, make a stem cell out of that, and now I can make a myocyte or I could make, you know, a stomach cell or an eye cell. Oh, my. I don't even know how. I can't even conceptualize of how he went about figuring that out. That's incredible. Right. A lot of trial and error. His story is very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of like, sure, let's try it. They tried a whole bunch of things and eventually some things worked. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, but this idea extends into medicine. And I think it's really cool because you said, hey, maybe a hospital could have a room full of kidneys and hearts. But what this really means is you could take a sick patient, take a, a, some skin, reprogram that, make organoids. And now I'm not just giving you kidneys from a donor. I'm giving you kidneys that have your exact genetic makeup. And what that means is your immune system is not going to reject it. All of this work to suppress the immune system for donors, or rather people receiving organs, it's out the window. You don't need to worry about it anymore because you've taken someone's own skin cells, turned that into an organ. What's that timetable look like? So we're nowhere near really that point. uh, That's like, that's the goal. Like that's, this is what can be achieved. That's, I think when we think of like the, the best case scenario for pinnacle. this field of science, that is, yes, I, I would consider that to be the pinnacle, the ability to take someone, uh, a couple of skin cells and make any organ that we want. But what we can really apply to now, which kind of comes to your question of the time frame, is 
with organoids, they're not full function organs. We're not putting them into people yet. But what we can do is we can test drugs. Because if you find out, uh, if, if you look at some of the data from clinical trials, some of it's really abysmal. I think there was a cholesterol reducing drug that's on the market. It got through all of its clinical trials, it's safe, but I think it was only effective in 14% of people. What? Yeah, so what that means is if a doctor's giving you this drug, you know, there, there's an 86% chance that you're wasting your time, that's not gonna do anything for you. And some of this is related to, you know, when an extension on this conversation that we won't get into too much, but over the history of the FDA, and the equivalent in Europe, you know, most of this research was being done on white males, especially young white males. Right. And so they find, you know, some efficacy and then they put it out into the general public and they find out that, okay, well now when we give it to women or we give it to uh, men and women of color, we're not seeing always the same effects. Uh, we've learned a lot about how heart attacks in women uh, actually manifest uh, and present themselves very differently. Uh, than males. And it's a silly oh, thing that we're just process. learning this. Yeah. Uh, and it's, <laughs> and, you know, you would think like, oh, we should have known this a long time ago. Right. But it was never necessary because if you had, you know, enough subjects, that's all they cared about was your N value. Like, oh, you have enough of an N for your statistics match. I don't care that they're all white men. Well, and, and so that's a, a bit I'll, of I'll let you continue in a second. But I think that when I mentioned earlier how beautiful that it was at your lab was literally from all over the world. This directly connects into why it's so pertinent to have diversity in research and in labs, because now mm -hmm. you're taking those considerations and saying, hey, this needs to be looked at too while this is being looked at. Yeah, absolutely. Things that, you know, people don't mistake on purpose or maliciously, but you just, you need more voices in the room and then you yeah. learn things you didn't even think to learn. Um, so when you have, you know, that situation, just the whole history of how these drugs come to be, on top of the fact that efficacy, you know, drugs don't have to work terribly well to get put on the market. Now, when you think about when you're being given a drug, you know, it's just kind of a shot in the dark. You know, is this going to work for me? Is this not? You know, many people may experience this, you know, if you have a preference for Claritin over Allegra or something like that, you know, you might realize like this drug works for me, this one doesn't. So what's really cool about organoids is if I were to take a biopsy from you, uh, I could have a biopsy from your intestine. Give me two weeks and I can now have hundreds of wells of organoids with each well wow. having dozens of organoids. So what is really cool about that is now in this little plate, I can have a culture full of your organoids that have your genetic makeup and I can give them all kinds of different drugs. So now instead of having you do this over the course of three years to find a drug that works, give me two weeks, I'll put them on a bunch of your organoids and we'll find the one that works the best. That is the idea of personalized medicine that I think is whoa. really exciting. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That is so freaking cool. And is that like an option at the moment? Or is that just something that y'all are perfecting right now? Or not, I don't want to say perfecting, but y'all are working on it right now. That's like, a, it's sort of in this kind of transition. Yeah. Uh, Hans Clevers, uh, the person, the, the father of organoids, if you will, um, he started doing some of this organoid work uh, with patients. Um, but as far as actually being a widespread, easy, easily accessible kind of field of medicine, it's not there yet. So I wanted to ask, uh, maybe like in a shot in the dark, 10 to 15 years, it's maybe an option. But two is, and again, maybe we don't even know, but what's that reception look like from the FDA and pharmaceuticals when you're kind of whittling down their options and saying you're finding out exactly what work would work as opposed mm -hmm. to them shelling out nine different medications and then they found one in the course of four years. Well, that's a lot of income that they're potentially going to lose, right? Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. And that's not an area that I have much experience with as far as actually getting these uh, kind of practices put into practice, if you will. Um, yeah. I don't actually know the pushback because scientifically it's there. That you know, sounds we're, like, we're good that, enough at it now. That sounds like legislation. And that sounds like, you know, a community wanting that and then a community not wanting that. It sounds like there would have to be some type of legislation to allow that. It's interesting to me. Indeed. And the word stem cells is such a buzzword. I think you yeah. get a lot of opinions about it without necessarily a realization of what's being talked about. 
And so it, it can be tough sometimes to push legislation that could help a lot of people. Um, and so that that's a whole area that's definitely outside of my field, but yeah. I, I know the science is pretty much there at this point, uh, but also some of its cost. You know, when you think about how much a computer costs in 1985 compared to what it costs now for the same, you know, power and ability, you know, it's astronomical difference right now. This is a pretty expensive endeavor. Hmm. Give it 15 years, maybe some of those uh, cultures, uh, reagents, the things we need, maybe they'll be a lot cheaper and it'll be yeah. easier to, to access and to put into practice. Uh, well, this has been a very riveting, like I'm lit up about this conversation. It's been so fun. And and we're at the end basically and I'm kind of sad because I could talk to you about this all day yeah um I I have two questions for you left and I ask every every guest these two questions um but if you had a podcast of your own and some like a company loved your work and they loved your podcast (laughs) what would be the company you would want to come to you and say hey we want to sponsor your podcast that's that's an interesting question and it could be a sports team too (laughs) (laughs) I'd probably have to say Fender. I think the guitars and the bass, that would just be cool, you know, to have like the the biggest music company like in history to want to be on my podcast. I'd be like, yes, please. That would be one of the coolest things I can think of. I love that. And in the, what they would do is they would pay their, their top ambassador to create you like this really cool guitar riff for your intro music. Oh man. Yeah. It would definitely be a bass groove, though, yeah. not a guitar lick. <laughs> so my second question is, what inspires you? And, and that can be either in the research or things that you see in the community with people that are doing something. And you're like, wow, I'm very inspired by that. I really like that question. Um, and it's a tough one to answer. You know, you, you think about it. And I've spent some time thinking about it. And more so than people, I think that stories inspire me. Um, I think that when you get too inspired by a person, you know, you sometimes you, know, you hear that phrase, like don't meet your heroes. <laughs> um, so so I, I think that more so than, than people, I get very inspired by stories, whether they be told through the medium of books or television or uh, just word of mouth. I think that when you hear someone else's experience, whether it be fiction or not, and you can pull from that in an empathetic way, uh, just kind of see how a story changed someone and try to apply that to yourself. I think that that is one of my favorite things about humanity, Um, but there are certain stories I can think of more than people that when I finish it, you know, whether, you know, you close that book and you just kind of feel this revitalization or maybe an entire kind of change in how you see the world, I think that I've gotten that experience usually not from a person, but rather from a story. I love that. That is, that's such a great answer. Um, well, Kiki, thank you so much for coming on today. Please come back on. Like, I would love to have you on at some other point. Absolutely, Alexander. I'm, I'd be happy to. We only, you know, got to the surface of, of some of the <laughs> stuff that I do. So I know you it's know, so cool. Next time, uh, honestly, when if you like a sequel, you just let me know. I'll set it up. I'll make sure I've got some time because I've had a really good time talking with you today. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to another episode and we'll catch you on the next one.